As you are seated, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, right at the beginning. Genesis, and we'll be in chapter 3 today. Over the past, we've seen God's creation in six days and is resting on the seventh day. And we saw his creation, the special creation of Adam to work and to keep a garden, giving him a commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then last week, really, the, the, the pinnacle of it all is creation of Adam or the creation of Eve to be a helper fit for him to bring them together, this first marriage, this first wedding together. And that brings us then to Genesis chapter 3, where, as Pastor Doug mentioned in his prayer, the great um, downhill slide, the great event, which changed change everything. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Please have a Bible uh, with you. I just encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, there's good apps on your phone. There's also uh, paper Bibles out in the foyer. I encourage you to, to pick up one of those. Genesis 3, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this tragic verse, Father, it's a verse that's given to us that we'd understand our, our history and our predicament. It's also one that's given to us that we might understand our own lives and our own choices better. And so, Father, would you send your Holy Spirit upon us to apply this passage to our life, to our situation, God, that we, faced with many temptations, Father, would be able to walk in a way that pleases and glorifies you. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we want to talk about temptation. And uh, you know what the big problem with temptation is? Is that it's just so tempting, right? I mean, you know that. The temptation makes something that is bad, it makes it look so good to us. Something that appeals in us, something that, that we shouldn't do, but something that we may regret later. Today we want to look at Adam and Eve and how they dealt with temptation. And you can remember where we left them last week. Uh, they were placed in this perfect garden of God's provision. Uh, there was a command to work and to keep that garden. And then God uh, brought Eve into Adam's life. They had each other with this command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had everything provided for them. They could have lived forever. And in our passage, we've already read that we see their temptation 
and we see their, their sin. Now remember, when this event takes, this, takes place, there is no sin in the world. There's no sin when, the, uh, when, when this starts, no evil, uh, no command of God had been broken. They could have eaten any tree of the garden except for that one, except for that one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was where their temptation was. They were tempted to eat that, that fruit of that one tree, and obviously they did. We see their transgression, and we see it as the original sin of humanity. Now, now what is temptation? I mean, practically speaking, uh, temptation is that process we go through before we get into trouble, right? Before we do something we're going to regret. It's a process. It's something that happens to us or something that happens within us with the next step that you just can't win. You might get away from it or you might give into it. And that's why the Bible gives us very simple instruction in dealing with temptation. Now, I'm going to read four verses to you, four verses to you. And I want you to, to look at those verses and to see if you can figure out what the Bible says that we should do with temptation. First one is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. It says this, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Or we could turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but, sexual immoral, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We could look at 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Just before that, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I don't have this on the screen, but I, I want to read it for you just so you think about it. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will let you, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you can see what that single instruction is. So all four verses provide the same guidance, and it's to flee, to run away, get out of the situation. The Bible in certain places tells us to resist the devil, but it never tells us to resist temptation. That's because we can't. You can think of a simple experiment here. I mean, I don't know if there's any chocolate lovers in the house, any people who love chocolate. I mean, today there's chocolate everywhere. Last night, there was chocolate all over the parking lot, <laughs> chocolate all over my house. You know, and you know, I'm saying if you leave, if you're a chocolate lover and you leave that chocolate on the countertop open for you to see, then you know what's going to happen, right? You're going to eat it. We might be able to relate with that little boy who stood in front of the, the candy store looking at that candy display. The shopkeeper looked at him because he was looking a little suspicious. And he said, what are you doing, son? You're not thinking about stealing a candy bar, are you? And the boy replied, no, sir. I'm trying not to. <laughs> you know, he's not doing himself any good by staring at that candy. And neither do we do any good at staring at the things that might tempt us. Now, we're dealing with things that are more than chocolate here. I mean, we're dealing with temptations of worship and living. We're dealing with temptations of lashing out in anger. Thing, uh, the question of will we lust? Will we ignore the Sabbath? Will we use that curse word? Will we steal? Will we envy? Will we use that biting comment? The main question that we must deal with when it comes to temptation is this one. Who is the Lord? 
So that's the main question we have to wrestle with when it comes to the area of temptation, whenever we face it. The question of who is the Lord? Is it the Lord God? Or is it your body? Is it your goals? Is it your family? Is it your happiness? Will you live for what sin offers? Will you live for pleasure, power, or control? Or will you live for God? I mean, is your temptation for the comfort that comes from having extra money, material possessions, from eating how you shouldn't, even though it brings comfort? Is it in the pleasure that comes from lustful thoughts or behaviors? Is it in the temptation to escape that you can somehow create yourself a better life if just you leave your responsibilities now? We all face temptations. And in a group like this, there's no doubt that some of you are facing some very large temptations. This passage also exposes us to the great challenge of lordship. Who will be lord of your life? Will it be God or will it be your own desires? Now remember, Genesis was originally written to the nation of Israel when they're about ready to enter into their promised land. They've escaped 400 years of slavery and they were on the verge of entering a new land, a new land flowing with milk and honey, which God had provided so much for them. They're going to form a national life. They're going to form a religious life. And the question for them is whether they would take God as Lord or whether they would take the tempting offers of the nations around them. You know the nature of temptation also. You know, I do. There's promises of better life if just we give in. There are promises of fun times if we set aside the commands of God. And even as you're here today, you might think of a, even, even right now, you might think of a temptation that affects you. And you might think of some of the message that we're going to work through about addressing your particular temptation with the word of God. Is it about anxiety? Is it about worry? Is it about worship or the Sabbath day? Maybe you want to skip it. Maybe it's about a relationship. Maybe it's a desire for revenge as our confession spoke about today. Are you overworking because of a love of money? Maybe it's your own habits, whether it's with eating, cutting, pornography. Maybe you're flirting with sexual sin. Maybe you're tempted to lie. Maybe there's something you steal. Maybe you're given to anger or, or to yelling or to sulking. You know, we can all maybe identify one temptation and to be able to bring it through a grid that we're going to look at today. It's because the world makes its promises of a, of a better life if just we give in to sin. And the, the question we have to answer is, is God the Lord? And if God is the Lord, because he is, we must flee temptation. And so what we want to do is to look at six steps that Adam and Eve took that moved them from uh, the original temptation all the way into the sin and then to see how that story changed us, how it changed you and me, and then to consider how we need to handle our own temptations for our future. All right, so the first step we see is in the questioning of God's goodness, the questioning of God's goodness. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So let's make some observations about the context, what's going on here. The first thing we see that the temptation comes from the devil. Adam and Eve did not bring this temptation with them. It didn't come from within them. And that's important. It came from without them. In the same way, there are times that you and I don't bring temptation into our life. It comes from outside of us. 
I mean, certainly some of the temptations we face come from internal desires that we might have, but some things just start outside of us. We live in a world that is deeply affected by sin. We live in a world that loves sin. But what you and I need to decide is what we're going to do with that temptation which comes outside of us. In this case, we see that the devil brings that to them, and he brings it to them uh, by taking the form of a serpent and speaking to Eve. We also think he's with Adam at the same time. Talk about that in a minute. Now, although the verse never specifically uses the word Satan or the devil, we know that it was. In Revelation 12, 9, the serpent is identified with Satan. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So here we see in, in Revelation 12, 9, the serpent, the devil and Satan, and a deceiver. It's important to remember that the devil was a created or is a created being. He fell from grace. He fell from grace because of his hatred of God, because of his pride. And, and as we see here, he wants to steal away from God's glory. And the way he does it is dividing man from God. He divides people from God. And that's his, his, his work, to steal God's glory in that way. And so here he, he speaks to Eve in a serpent form. And just in, in this whole process, we see the whole creation story that's turned upside down. Remember, Adam and Eve were given the charge to, to take dominion over the whole earth. And here you have Adam and Eve listening to the serpent. They weren't supposed to listen or be influenced by it, but instead they're supposed to shape it. But we see the beginning of ignoring God's creative design in the way that they listen. As for the temptation itself, the devil casts doubt on God's goodness. He makes God look stingy with his gifts. The devil wants Eve to think that God is holding something back. And so what he does is he, he brings a false charge against God by asking if God won't allow them to eat of any of the trees in the garden. And the devil certainly knows this isn't true. He knows that God had allowed Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life, of every other tree in the garden, except for that one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that doesn't matter to Satan, and the truth never matters to him, and that's because he wants to create an impression, the impression in the, an impression that's going to turn them in their minds away from God. The first step for him is to bring God's goodness into question by bringing this charge. Now, another observation we want to see as we look at Genesis 3.1 is that he speaks to the woman. He doesn't speak to the man. You know, God had created Adam and Eve to be one flesh, but here, he's focusing individually on her, and she's operating individually. Now, the original command that was given was uh, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of evil, of, of knowledge of good and evil. That was given to Adam before Eve was created. You can go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and to see that. And so that when Eve would have been created as Adam's helper, Adam would have communicated God's commands to her. God gave him primary responsibility, and she was supposed to help him in doing that. Well, here the devil wants to undermine this created order, and unfortunately, Adam and Eve both seem to go along with his trickery. Last week, uh, during the sermon, we talked about the many attacks on the family. Well, here we see the devil's attack against the family right at the beginning, where he seeks to divide the woman from the man by bringing the temptation to her. Now, why does he bring it to Eve and... We don't know for sure, but one thing we know is we know the incredible power of influence. In this case, we see that the devil influences Eve, and then Eve influences her husband, 
Adam to eat the fruit. We always have to ask where our influences come from. The movies we watch, the books we read, the social media we consume, the friends we have, all of those have an influence on us. And while we might think that they don't affect us much, we can be our own person, it really only takes a little impression of influence to begin um, doubting the goodness of God. We, we, we see this here. We're created to be in community. We're created to be with others. We're created to help each other on to God. And that influence can be used for good or it can be used for evil. But it's going to affect us greatly. That's why the Bible tells us that we should be careful um, who, we're equal, who we're yoked with. The Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. In other words, um, unequally connected with others in vital relationships. But to be sure that the deepest relationships that we have help us to walk on with God. We need to ask ourselves even whether our own influence is, to be used for the good, is being used for the good of others or dragging others down. Now, we might ask where Adam is in this case. You know, what is Adam doing when the devil is speaking with Eve? And most likely, he's with her. If you look down at verse 6 in your, in your text, it says there that Eve gave this fruit to her husband, and it says he was with her. He was with her. And so in this whole story, we see this absolute failure on Adam's part. It was a failure to protect Eve from the, the devil. It was a failure to keep her from disobeying God's command. He had the responsibility given to him to protect the people he loved. Adam had the responsibility not to eat of the fruit himself. One of the greatest roles that men have is to protect their loved ones from harm. And Adam gave up his responsibility as husband, as protector, as leader. Now, this protection is, is part of being masculine. And it's a sad testimony when husbands don't do this for their wives. They could be protecting them from physical harm, from emotional harm, or even spiritual harm. This is spiritual neglect when we disregard God's commands. We fail to speak about temptations to our, to, to our wives or to our children. We need to talk about and build relationships that help them address life in this world. Even children, we think about them, they need appropriate boundaries in the home, especially with the internet. You know, the average age the child sees pornography is 11 or, or less. It's one way that we protect by protecting from that. I mean, there's others. But it's also a sad testimony when wives disregard the protection their husbands are called to give. Undoubtedly, you know, we see Eve having some awareness of what God had uh, commanded Adam here. But in the end, indulging the temptation itself. She should have turned away from the temptation or she should have stopped listening. She should have sought help to do what was right. She was supposed to be Adam's helper, but in the end, she helps him only on to sin. One commentator says Eve should have recoiled in horror and run away screaming. And so as we look around the situation, we see failure all around. Ultimately, we're going to see where Adam bears the brunt of the guilt, um, but both have responsibility in it. We're going to see how it shakes out in the next few verses. All right, so verse, uh, the, the, verses 2 and 3 point us to the second step in the adjusting of God's word. The adjusting of God's word. All right, so Eve sees her role. Um, you know, Eve's, this temptation has come her way, and now she sees it as her role to answer the accusations of the devil. Verse 2 says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I think that Eve should have stopped before she ever got to this point. 
You remember our calls to flee temptation, our, our calls to, to, to go back to the word of God and his great promises, to go back to God himself. I mean, we're, we're people who are called to live on conviction based on what God has revealed about himself, how he's revealed himself as a loving creator. And instead of arguing these things out, we go back to the word of God. I mean, sometimes we just don't have to argue about it. Our role is to speak in thankfulness and appreciation to God. But Eve decides here to speak and to justify God with her own words. Now, one of the reasons I think the Bible tells us to flee temptation is that we can't outwit the devil. In fact, her very effort to explain God's actions cause her to fall exactly in the temptation he has for her. I mean, he's already just begun to sow that seed of doubt that, that maybe God's actions aren't justified. We're going to see if she's going to go into it. And that's the way that she does it is by changing God's command to them. So maybe it doesn't look so severe. You know, she wants to just to make his commands look just a little bit better. And so she does three things that I, that I think show the devil's already really gotten to her in the temptation. The first thing she does is she diminishes, diminishes something of God's promises. The second thing she does is she adds something to God's command. And the third thing she does is she softens God's warning. She really does all things in this. Okay, for the first thing, what does she diminish? Now, to see this, I want you to compare what is said in Genesis 3.3 with Genesis 2.16 and 17. So maybe Genesis 2.16 and 17 can be on the screen, and you can keep in your Bible as you follow along, Genesis uh, 3, um, 2 and 3. Um, now notice, if you look at uh, Genesis 2.16, that God says here that they may eat of every tree in the garden. But notice, if you look at Genesis 3, that's not what she says to the devil. She doesn't tell the devil about God's abundant blessing. In this way, by diminishing what God gives to her, she actually imitates the devil's questions of God's generosity. So the devil, you know, exaggerated his own accusation against, against God. Eve pulls him back, but she doesn't pull him all the way back, showing that maybe she's received some of that accusation for herself. She diminishes God's gift of all of the garden. All right, secondly, what does she add? Well, you can see that in verse 3, where she says that God commanded them not to eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and then she adds in, neither should they touch it. If you look back at Genesis 2.17, God never commanded them not to touch it. He just commanded them not to eat it. Now, it can seem like an innocent thing to add this little requirement in there. I mean, when we think that something may harm us, we might set some extra boundaries to make sure that we don't even come close to approaching um, that thing that's wrong. And she knows that if she doesn't touch it, she's certainly not going to eat it. But adding to, to God's commands is not a small thing. In fact, it can be a threat to the righteousness God wants for our world. I mean, oftentimes it shows up in legalistic morality. It demonstrates itself by forbidding things that God hasn't forbidden. Just so we don't come close to the edge of a pit. I mean, Jesus had to deal with this legalism throughout his own ministry. As the religious leaders of his day, they made command after command after command just to try to make the nation righteous and good enough to get God's blessing. But during Jesus' time... You know, those commands were oppressive. They were controlling to God's people. They actually kept people away from God instead of drawing him to God. And Jesus reoriented, reoriented his people towards himself, belief in himself, and to see that they're called to love God and to love their neighbor. But something that could only be accomplished through 
him and his work on the cross. Now, we can feel so smart in adding rules to God's word, and, and we might feel safe, but it can also be the devil's playground. I mean, how many of these rules that we add to, to move farther and farther back exasperate our children? How many of these rules point us away from the truth of God's word rather than towards it? How many of our man-made rules make us feel self-righteous, as if we earn God's acceptance by our own efforts, instead of depending on God's grace through Jesus Christ? Man-made rules drive us and others to fear and isolation. We shouldn't be adding to God's commands. That's, that's what Eve did here. And finally, what does Eve soften? We can see this in verse 17, or in uh, verse 3. Well, in Genesis 2.17, God says the day they eat of it, they shall surely die. When Eve speaks to the devil in Genesis 3.3, she leaves out the word surely. You know, the the threat, the consequence is, is diminished. There's, there's, you know, the, the, the certainty of it is, is taken away. Now, why was this particular fruit forbidden? I mean, the fruit is placed there as a test. It's put there to demonstrate their faith. It was given to them as a covenant of work. So as long as they obeyed this command, uh, as long as they believed God by faith, as long as uh, they did these things, they would be blessed to live forever. But if they broke the command, as God says in Genesis 2, 17, they should surely die. In the same way, when we look at our own temptations, we might diminish the consequences before us. We might think that we can actually get away with it, right? We know there are consequences of sin. We've heard it from God's word. We've heard it from our parents. We've heard it from the papers, from the preacher. But for some reason, we think that this time it won't affect us in the way that it's been advertised. We need to take God's warnings seriously. So here we see the second step of the, of the adjusting of God's word. And that leads us then into the third step. It's the questioning of God's motives. The questioning of God's motives. We see that in verses 4 and 5. And the devil, he pushes deeper into questioning God. This time the questioning the motives of God. Look what he says. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we see Satan flatly contradicting God's word. So where God said, you will surely die, Satan says, you will surely not die. I mean, just one word, but it makes all the difference in the world. It's interesting to note that the first doctrine that was denied in the garden was the doctrine of divine judgment. You know, that's the first doctrine that's denied, the doctrine of divine judgment. Even today, people don't like to talk about hell. They don't like to talk about um, God's judgment that's coming. And uh, false teachers deny it frequently. We want to speak about God's love. But what about the need of righteousness? That's exactly what Satan denies here. He loves for us to think there's no consequence to our behaviors and beliefs. But Satan also adds a little sugar into his temptation. He doesn't just say, you will surely not die. But he also questions God's intentions in giving the commands. He twists God's word and to make them think that God is keeping Adam and Eve from the full potential of who they could become. Satan tempted them that their idea was to be, you know, that their, their potential, their full potential was to be like God. I mean, the deceit of all of this is to see that they were already the most godlike creatures on the planet. 
Why would they be discontent with that? But yet, that's the way he goes, and he feeds them this lie, and it's a lie that many people have believed since then. It's this belief that, that holiness will not lead to my happiness. It's the belief that if we obey God's commands, that somehow we will be missing out on, on what we could become, or we'll somehow we'll be miserable. It's a lie that if you want to be happy, that you have to disobey God. We know the promise of Scripture. I mean, it's set in one of our recent fighter verses, if you follow along with those. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it tells us to trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a test. It was a test for Adam and Eve who decided to be Lord of their lives. It was a question of sovereignty. It was a question of whether their sovereign would be God, or they would obey his commands, whether he would be their standard of right or wrong, or whether they would. It's not that God is telling them not to think or to check their brains in the door. He was calling them to be intelligent. You remember how uh, Adam named all the animals? They were supposed to be thoughtful in their obedience to God to understand the world, but they needed to trust what God had revealed to him. And so Satan's temptation was that somehow they could be equal to or even above God. Eve wouldn't have to be under God anymore. The attraction of the tree was that she could make the rules herself. And it was too much for her in the end. And so when people ask what original sin is, you're reminded that it wasn't lust. Original sin isn't sex or it isn't pride. Original sin is the rejection of God's lordship over all of life. Original sin is the rejection of God's lordship over our life. And that's what we're tempted to. The rejection of God's lordship over all areas. It's the temptation to be the boss. And that's what they gave in to in the end. All right, so that's our third step. And then our fourth step, now that this um, motives are questioned, there's the, the, the justification of a new behavior. Step four in verses six. See, Eve, Eve sees the, the, the fruit differently than she did in the past, and she decides to eat. It's because the fruit becomes more delightful to her than God's commands do. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we see this change in, in Eve's life, and she sees the physical temptation of the tree. She sees it, its aesthetic draw, this aesthetic temptation, and also the enticement of the power that it offers to her, according to the devil. She sees that it's good for food, that it's just simply, you know, a good and tasty thing to eat. And oftentimes that's the starting point of temptation. We might justify it as something that we need or something that looks good, something that God has given. She needs food to live, right? Well, this is simply food that she needs. Never mind that it's off limits. It's just something that's for her. The aesthetic temptation comes in that it is a delight to her eyes. It's more than just food, but it's delightful food to her. Think, you know, the, the thinking that something uh, forbidden is better than the thing that we currently have. Seeing something forbidden is beautiful. And then the third step is that power step. It would, it's desirable to make her wise. And that becomes the final determination. That, she's the, that she is the one who ultimately should be deciding what is good for her and what isn't. James 1, 14 and 15 speaks of temptation in a similar way. 
It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, it's our own desire that lures us and entices us to sin. It's a trap to take the bait and to get ensnared. It might start from outside, but it's when we internalize it, we're drawn towards it, that sin, we enter into sin. And so these three steps to temptation become a paradigm for us in handling all of our temptations. We see it's something we need. It looks good. And we believe that we can solve all of our problems by ourselves. The person who's being tempted might say, you know, what could be wrong with doing this? I need it. I need to do it. In fact, you know, this looks a lot better than what I have, or this looks a lot better than the way I've been doing it. I'm tired of missing out. I'm tired of, of dealing with this problem. It would really help me to solve my problems. Maybe God doesn't have the best answer anyway. I can take care of this myself. This really is the pattern to temptation. And that leads her to the action at the end of verse 6, which is our fifth step, which is acting on the temptation. Step 5 is acting on the temptation. So with this change in thinking, with this change in hearts, all that attraction to the fruit, Eve decides to eat. Not only does Eve choose to eat, but she also gives it to Adam and he eats. This is where sin enters in the world. 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us that Adam wasn't deceived by the devil as much as he was basically just disobedient. Maybe you noticed that Eve had eaten, but she hadn't died. And so he figures, well, you know, she hasn't died. I might as well eat also. I mean, she played with the temptation until she ultimately gives into it. And isn't that how it works? The result of indulging in temptation is to eventually walk into that temptation. You know, we can't think that we can play with fire and not get burned. I mean, it will affect us. You know, it's why we have to deal with temptation severely at times. You know, if you have that chocolate temptation, you know, it needs to be either in the trash can or behind the cupboard. So at least you don't have to look at it, but constantly looking at it, indulging it, you know, creates that temptation that's hard to get through. You know, there's some relationships that you may have a part of your life where it continues an ongoing temptation because you're still part of it. And you know it's tempting, you know it's creating problems for you, and you keep indulging it, and you know it's something that needs to end. There's maybe technology that you have inside your life, and, and it's a temptation always to, to indulge in something that's wrong or sinful. Sometimes we need to do something severe with that. As Jesus says, there's time to gouge our eye or, or cut off our arm, lest we um, would sin and our whole body would be cast into hell. You know, Jesus sees the grave risk that is in temptation and says, deal severely with it. You know, as we deal with sin, you know, we don't indulge in it because we know where it leads. As Adam's choice pulled all of humanity then into the guilt of sin. That's what Adam's choice did. It pulled all of humanity into the guilt of sin. You know, that's the recurring theme throughout the Bible. The theme is that Adam's sin was original sin. It's a sin from which all others grow out of. You know, we, we have to look at Romans 5 again because it shows what's going on here. Romans 5 Verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and death spread to all men, to all people, because all sinned. So we see here Adam's sin was a sin not just for himself, not just for his wife, 
but for all of his descendants. It affected everyone. Romans 5.12 says we've all sinned. How do we sin? Well, we sinned in our representative Adam. His decision to sin was our decision to sin. God selected him to stand in our place and to make that decision, and so it affects us all. So it's not just a paradigm, as we think about temptation. It is an actual historical event which affects each and every one of us to this day, has its consequences. That's what we're going to see in our next step, which is step six. So Adam sinned. Eve sinned. How does it affect them? We can see the internalizing of the consequences in verse seven. Verse seven goes on to show that the consequence of sin was death. Just as God had promised it was. God promised them when they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. And immediately after eating the fruit, something in them instantly died. Their innocence died. They both experienced something they had never felt before. They felt guilt, they felt exposure, and they felt shame. They were outside the life that God had promised. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here they instantly feel that shame. They feel like they need to cover it themselves. What's, what's the shame? What's the source of it? It's their own guilt. Shame is that, that the feeling that comes over us when we think that something is wrong with us. And in this case, Adam and Eve knew that there was something wrong with them. They no longer had that innocence that they had before. Now, now they were guilty before the eyes of God, and they realized that their guilt would keep them away from him, and they, and they felt that shame. There, there are different kinds of shame. I mean, sometimes we feel shame for things that are no faults of our own. You know, sometimes uh, people do things to us or say things to us, which we have no control over, and that makes us feel shame. Sometimes we have a wrong view of ourselves that leads to shame. But where does it all come to? It comes back to this event, the introduction of sin and guilt into the world. And so while there are all kinds of false shames in the world, all kinds of false shame that the world, the flesh, and the devil heap on us, they all have their origin in this alienation that comes from God in the beginning. It's a reminder of our need of reconciliation with him. And it's a reminder of just how much was lost on this tragic day of the original sin. Now, before sin uh, came into the world, reminded that God's grace was a covering for them. They, they knew God's acceptance. They knew acceptance before one another. You know, that covenant of works that was given, it connected them with him and it covered them. But now that it was broken and eating that fruit, they're exposed. And so what do they do? They sew fig leaves together and they make themselves loincloths. They try to cover themselves by fig leaves. How often do we try to do something similar? We make a mistake. We feel the guilt. We feel the shame. We try to cover it up ourselves with our own works. But it doesn't help. Shame is so deeply felt. It's not something we can expunge from ourselves. Indeed, you know, sin has to be taken away. You know, today is Reformation Day. It's the day that we remember Martin Luther um, starting this Protestant Reformation. And with all the guilt that, that Luther felt inside of his life. He knew that he needed something to take it away. And he knew that the system of trying to cover himself up with, with his religious rituals, with his religious works, that none of it could take his sin away, but it had to be taken away by someone else. And he was so encouraged by 
verse like Romans 1, 16 and 17, but it says, where it talks about the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. The righteousness of God which, with which a person can be reconciled to God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And he realized that, and he held on to that. That was his hope. That was his hope in the midst of a, of, of a world that believed that it could make fig leaves together to cover up its own sin and shame. See, because there's a strange optimism with, with sin. It's the optimism that says that we can cleanse ourselves, that we can clean it all off when we can't. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about more, a little bit more about sin and shame next week. But here we realize how they tried to cover up their own nakedness. There was something wrong. It was something that was lost. The temptation had consequences, and they felt those. What they needed was a savior. So all of this is a pretty sad story. You know, it's the entrance of sin in the world, about how, how uh, sin has affected us. It's not just a paradigm for us, but it's an actual historical event which affects us. But there's good news in it. And the good news, you know, comes later as we see that God sent another representative. Another representative who would also encounter temptation, but this time walk obediently in it. Hebrews 4.15 speaks about him. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, who is that representative who perfectly obeyed the word of God? You know, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can consider how Jesus endured temptation in Luke chapter 4. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We read this, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a lot to unpack in this, and so we're not going to do it all. But you'll notice each of the three times, Jesus does not argue with the devil. He does not resort to his own thinking. But what does he do? He goes straight back to the word of God. He goes straight back to the promises that God has made to his people, just as Eve should have done. He doesn't diminish. He doesn't add. He doesn't soften. But he brings the word of God to bear upon his temptation. And so in this, Jesus becomes a paradigm for us in dealing with sin. Confronted with temptation, we must flee and run towards, run towards the word of God. But Jesus did something better than just set an example for us. He became a representative for us. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, looking at verses 18 and 19. It reminds us what Adam did, but also shows us what Jesus did. Therefore, it says, as one trespass led condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In human history, since Adam has boiled down to the question of whose, whose headship are we under? Are we under the headship of Adam or under the headship of Christ? Adam was the one who succumbed to temptation. He's the one who ate of the fruit. He's the one who disobeyed God. But Christ, on the other hand, he's the one who trusts in the word of God. He obeyed the commandments of God. And so which one will you be under? Would Christ be your representative? We're all guilty under original sin. Adam's sin has become ours. We're under his condemnation. But let's be honest with ourselves that we've all chosen our own lordship over God's lordship. We've all earned our own sentence of death. We've all disobeyed God's commands. We've all listened to temptation, indulged in our minds, and given into it. It's not just something we can blame somebody else for, but it's something that we recognize that we've done ourselves, we've sinned. We can't fix sin ourselves, but we need a savior. Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the commandments of God. He resisted temptation so that we could have his righteousness so that through the power of his Holy Spirit working in us, then we can obey God's commands, that we can rest ourselves in his salvation. And so when we're tempted, we need to flee, right? We have someone to flee to. We have a savior who has defeated temptation. It's in him we rest, and it's in him we find new power for our own temptations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, indeed, our great escape from temptation is in Jesus Christ. God, he overcame temptation for us. He has loved us. He can deliver us. Father, and we know that we need this because obedience to you and, and, and union with Christ, that will satisfy us far more than anything else in the world. But it's in you and it's in Christ. And so, Father, help us to flee to him. I pray for those who may be struggling with big temptations big temptations that are before them, or even temptations that they are continually faced with and continually giving into. God, that the hope of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of his grace, the power of the gospel, will strengthen them to make, uh, will strengthen them to come to you with that temptation, to flee temptation, to kill sin, and to find power in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to walk in newness of life. God, thank you for this great gospel that you've given to us, the great gospel where we find hope and a hope to overcome. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.